Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Power in Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians, and today Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Relying on God. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There's a hymn that many of you are going to remember. We used to sing, Learning to Lean, Learning to Lean, I'm Learning to Lean on Jesus. Finding more power than I'd ever dreamed, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Now, most Christians understand that pivotal to our growth in Christ is that we learn to repeat the words that come from Philippians 3, verse 3, that we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We're learning to lean on him and not on ourselves. And when the world tells us, you know, you've got to believe in yourself, well, we respond, I make it my aim in life not to believe in myself. I make it my aim to believe in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Well, that's what we're after, but how do we get there? You know, pride is such a strong impulse, and pride demands we lean on ourselves. And so it would seem, given the the natural default setting of our pride, I would think that we'd have a great deal of difficulty getting there at all. Now think of it this way. If you find out that someone you care about is slandering you behind your back, chances are that will be more significant to you than if you hear about millions who are starving. Yeah, we're all self-absorbed and self-focused more than we even know. Yeah, but as the song goes, we're learning to lean on Jesus. That is, we're being changed by the new heart that God has given us in our conversion. But how do we get humble and God-focused so we really do trust in or lean on Jesus? So here's the good news. God is orchestrating events in your life so that the events, along with the new heart, makes Jesus and his matchless glory more significant than yourself. Well, let's find out how that worked in Paul's life. I'm starting by reading a part of our text, so we're going to begin with 2 Corinthians 1, 8-11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So let's remember the context of 2 Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a difficult church, lots of problems. And a part of those problems was that they were slandering the apostle Paul. I mean, perhaps some said, you know, he's not an apostle after all. I mean, what if Jesus didn't send him? Well, now, his letters are pretty impressive. But then again, when you actually meet him, he's much less impressive. He's he's poor. He's been sick a fair bit, and it seems highly unlikely that God would allow one of his chosen leaders to have suffered so. I bet he's not blessed by God at all. After all, doesn't God protect his people? And yet, here's a man that doesn't seem to be protected by God. And when you meet him, you get a sense of how desperate his condition has become. So this section, Paul pulls back the curtain on his life. You think my life's hard, he says? Well, perhaps you didn't know that my life was far worse than you might have imagined. 
So let's begin with verse 8, our starting verse. And there you're going to see he mentions the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, Now remember, Corinth is in Greece. And when we read of Asia in the Bible, it doesn't mean how we think of it today. Asia then was roughly equivalent to what we now call the nation of Turkey. So now, as you know, Asia was the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys, and it is true that the planting of churches in that part of the world had resulted in a very strong backlash from many locals in that area. I mean, he was confronted by pagan magicians. He was confronted by the the Jewish leaderships in local synagogues, and it was always contentious. And then he had been stoned in Lystra and so forth. There were lots of grounds for suffering. But notice in verse 8, Paul doesn't speak about the afflictions, that is, in the plural. He's not in verse 8 referring to the sum total of everything he's been going through. He's rather referring to one very specific affliction. You know, I think because he doesn't have to mention, you know, what affliction he's speaking about, he's quite likely that the Corinthian church must have known what he was talking about. It must have been so massive a moment that everyone understood, yeah, that moment, I mean, that was really bad. But of course, reading this letter 2,000 years later, I mean, we can't be sure which event he's referring to. But we might make some educated guesses. One possibility is that, you know, he's referring to the riot in Ephesus, especially at the hands of one, it was a man named Demetrius the silversmith. Demetrius seems to have run a rather sizable and successful idol business in that city, and Paul's preaching was cutting into his profits. So he led a major rebellion in the city. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, Paul mentions that he had fought wild beasts in Ephesus. So that would mean that he would have been imprisoned, and then he would have been thrown into a large theater, and there's one there, where they expected him to have been eaten by wild and savage animals. And somehow he survived that ordeal, but, but you have to believe that he was most likely injured through that incident. I mean, perhaps some of the injuries were permanent. And that wasn't the only trauma he experienced in Ephesus. He also barely escaped being lynched by the crowd. And by every estimation, he must have been traumatized by that experience as well. You know, other Bible teachers today suggest that, you know, Paul might have been referring to an illness that in some way was always there and that had flared up recently and that he had almost died. You know, later in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to speak about a thorn in the flesh, something in his body that was so painful that he had begged God three times to take it away. Now, now that could be it, but, but I do notice that the word affliction is not a word that Paul normally uses to describe a sickness. I think he's describing persecution here. Well, of course, all the guessing in the world won't answer what he's really referring to, but, but we do notice as we study this section that Paul seems to string together a series of superlatives. Notice he mentions great pressure. Then, beyond our ability to endure. So we get the sense that that Paul had been under such pain that whereas the normally courageous and never quitting Paul was now at a place that he was beyond his ability to carry on. He, He was done, as it were. He couldn't carry on. Now, if that had occurred, we have to wonder what that might have meant for the Gentile mission. If Paul, since some painful experience on top of everything else, left him paralyzed and helpless, what was now to come of the vision of seeing the gospel going out to the Gentiles? In essence, had Paul collapsed at this point in time or or burned out or physically died, you know, in reality, there was no one else to carry the work on. Had that happened, it seems very likely that you and I might not have heard the gospel today. 
I mean, without Paul, the gospel would most likely have remained a sect within Judaism and a very small sect at that. And Paul seems to have appreciated what was at stake, and he also seems to have appreciated the burden that he was carrying on his shoulders. Now, just as an aside, notice Paul is using the word we. He never says who we is, but I think since he begins by speaking about him and Timothy, I think that's what he's referring to. Paul not only reached the point of a massive burnout, he saw the same in Timothy as well. His entire team had been defeated. You know, some of you who are listening to me have experienced something like that. And then you've even gone into a mental collapse. And then just so, so we understand Paul, he says that in my case, he says, I despaired of life. You know, it's possible, as we all know, to simply lose the will to live. And Paul said, that's where I was. The blackness of the despair that I felt in my life was such that I could easily have just let myself die. You know, we have all sorts of psychological words to describe this phenomenon. You know, a a mental breakdown, severe depression, deep and lasting sadness that just won't go away. That's followed by a loss of interest in life and in pleasure or even in meaning. You know, a person just becomes so disengaged in everything. No words can now bring them hope. The smile has disappeared from their lips, and sheer and utter despair descends on them like a very dark winter night. And if that's not enough, Paul says, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. He's using an analogy here. You know, a prisoner on trial with a death sentence hanging in the balance. But in my case, says Paul, it felt like the trial was over and I'd lost. The judge pronounced the verdict. It was death. No appeals, no hope for a better outcome. The outcome was now in. I had lost and I was condemned and there was no way back from that. You shocked to hear the great apostle speaking that way? Perhaps you're like the Corinthian church. that You believe that God would never allow his people to go through something like that. Those who go through those kinds of experience must have no faith. Pagans go through that. God's people don't. Well, now, if that's what you think, you're wrong. I might ask others of you, have you experienced that? Why would God allow that? Hang on, there's a very, very important answer to that question. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right. Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take 5. These are five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. You know, sometimes when in the service of Christ, God's people suffer such appalling treatment at the hands of others that we ask ourselves, I mean, does God care? 
Is it because I've sinned horribly? Is it because God is satisfied to remain silent while I you know, lift my hands and cry to him in despair? I notice, would you, that if we go ahead to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 9, you know, Paul says that what he went through felt exactly the same as a man condemned to die in an arena. You know, to say as Paul does in chapter 1 verse 9, that he had received the, the death sentence, well, that's, that's an explosive statement. Do you think that bad things just happen, kind of like random events, good and bad come to us all? It's just, you know, it's just the luck of the draw. I know some of you do think that way. And when we think that way, listen, we abandon the security that we have a loving God who cares deeply for his children and orders all things according to the counsels of his will and for the long-term good of those who love him. God in love designs our experiences. You know, all that comes to us, even the painful cup of suffering, comes from his loving and faithful hand. But even so, I've known even Christians who can't get themselves to believe that. So these people say, you know, it's far easier to say God had nothing to do with these very painful experiences. Yeah, he can heal them and he can redeem them. But for some people, random events, you know, random bad events, sometimes they just happen, you know, because we live in a sinful and fallen world. And so for people who believe like this, they don't look for purpose in their suffering. Rather, for them, there is no purpose. Just the hope that in heaven, God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. (laughs) That's not what Paul's view of suffering was. Look at the last part of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The Greek has the word hina, in order that. It's a purpose clause. There is, says Paul, a divine purpose in all of savage and painful suffering. God designed all of this uniquely for me with a purpose, and that purpose was that I and Timothy would not rely on ourselves. God took away all the power of self and left us completely naked of fleshly strength. We were reduced to nothing so that we would have no choice but to throw ourselves onto the power of God. You're going to notice that I began today's message quoting the words of that older hymn, Learning to Lean on Jesus, Finding More Power Than I'd Ever Dreamed. See, I'd like here to get personal. You know, I've been a pastor for many years. I've also taught seminary-level classes. Uh, I've met with many pastors, both ones who are struggling to get a church going over 100 and those who have pastored churches of many thousands. And here's what I've noticed, both of me and of others. Ego is a huge part of all of this. I mean, we glory in our successes. And does that surprise you to hear that? Well, it shouldn't. You know, we pastors are not unlike the rest of the human race. Pride, self-assurance, glorying in the strength of the human flesh. And did you also know that God said it not once but twice? James 4, 6 and in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I hope you heard that. When you glory in your own successes, you have an enemy, God. Do you think that's serious? (laughs) I think it is. And so God was assuring that Paul would never become his enemy. He was creating an attitude in Paul in which Paul would rely on God and not on himself. I know it's a severe mercy, but it's mercy. Indeed, Paul says, I relied on God who raises the dead. He did it in Jesus, and he did it in me when I was despairing of life. It was the great preacher John Chrysostom who preached on this very text, and there he said, 
notwithstanding that the resurrection is a future event, Paul shows that it happens every day. For when God raises up again a man whose life is despaired of, and who has been brought to the very gates of hell, he shows nothing other than a resurrection, snatching from the very jaws of death the one who had fallen into them, end quote. Oh, that's it. Paul says, when I was at the point of dying, I saw the powerful hand of God who rescued me, and I've never forgotten it. I now know that nothing I do comes from me. It's always been the power of God. And by the way, don't you think it's wonderful? And it's wonderful also that Paul was given that insight. Might I say this to you, my dear listener? I pray you'd have the same insight, although I would pray that you would have less suffering than Paul. But there is no greater insight than to know that in all things, I must rely on him who raises the dead. And therefore, I must despise my own pride and my own reliance on the flesh. Now go to verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, you notice that Paul uses the word deliver three times. Other translations translate that word as rescue. So the implication in the word is, you know, that the danger was acute and the rescue was called for. You know, I live on the west coast of Canada, and often, especially at winter time, but also in summer, I mean, hikers can get lost in the mountains and in the wilderness. They might simply be lost or they might be injured, and they're unable to continue. And at such times, search and rescue has to go into some very treacherous environments in order to get them out. And that's Paul's words. God has rescued me in the past, and he's going to rescue me in the near future. I know that. And he's going to rescue me in the very distant future. I'm confident that no matter how great the peril is or how weary I have become or how despairing I may be, there will always be enough from God. And with that, Paul now urges the Corinthian church not to reject him because of his suffering. They're supposed to embrace him and they're supposed to help him. But how do they help him? He says, by your prayers. Well, now Paul is learning to lean on Jesus and he's finding more power than he's ever dreamed. And he, and he despises pride and he despises boasting. Or does he? Well, suddenly we now see that Paul begins to talk about boasting. So we come to verses 12 to 14. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So it turns out, says Paul, there's really a reason to boast and to be proud after all. Now, in order to understand Paul's pride, we need to start with that last verse, verse 14. In the day of our Lord Jesus, writes Paul, you will boast about us and we're going to boast about you. Think about it this way. Think of a faithful church that has a faithful pastor. You know, in the day of the Lord, that church is going to boast that God was so merciful to them that he, in mercy, gave them a faithful pastor. That, they will say, is how much the Lord loved us. And that pastor is also going to boast in the church that he was privileged to serve. I mean, don't you see? This has nothing at all to do with anything other than God's mercy. It's not as if the church is going to say, I mean, that's the kind of talent that we were able to attract over here. Rather, they're going to boast, that's how good God was to us. 
Now, as to how blessed the church in Corinth was to have Paul as the apostle who planted a church and cared for them, think about it. Notice how Paul speaks about himself. He says, I have a boast. My conscience is clean. Now, please notice that he's not saying he's sinless. You know, in 2 Timothy, he would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. And secondly, he's not saying that in his own conscience, he's determining what's acceptable and what's not. See, 1 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. That is, Paul knows that it's not his conscience that determines his faithfulness. Rather, it's God that does that. But, Paul says, I'm not aware that I've acted badly in this world. My conscience is clean. Indeed, he says, I've acted three ways. The first is simplicity or single-mindedness. That is, I've never acted with ulterior motives. Second, he says, I've acted with godly sincerity. I mean, knowing that I'm accountable to God in everything. And third, he says, I've acted not according to the standards of this fallen world, but according to the grace of God. And in essence, Paul is saying, what I was when I was with you was shaped by God. When I led you on a godly path, it was because that was the man that God made me to be through my sufferings, and you need to boast about my sufferings. So, you know, you want to be a man or a woman like that, shaped by God? trusting in his power rather than your own? See, if you're shaped in that fashion, you can boast in God. He makes his servants to look remarkably like Jesus. John, you know, when you talk about Paul, I find him to be a remarkable figure and all that he had to overcome. But we also recognize that he, he suffered and he was in a dark place. And I think that speaks to us as God's people as well. Yeah, these things are given for our encouragement. You know, so for anybody today who finds themselves, you know, deeply discouraged, even um, close to despairing, um, a point of depression, you know, some of us think that, well, you know, that, that can't be consistent with a Christian life. Um, and Paul's experience should encourage us rather than discourage us. I mean, if, if God, if even the great apostle went through that and God was able um, to bring him back to the place of passion and everything else that made up his life, can he not also do so in us? And the answer is, of course, he can. So don't fail to look unflinchingly at Paul. And from that, look at God and get encouragement. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in 2 Corinthians, Power and Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? 
your gifts make this ministry possible. To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.